is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand. Welcome to the Country Hour. We are broadcasting today from Charles Darwin University, which is hosting the 2023 Savannah Fire Forum. This event has been growing and growing over the years. And in 2023, well, CDU this year has got 350 delegates that have come from all over Northern Australia and also the world. I've been told that more than 30 Indigenous language groups are represented here today. There are people who have come from Botswana, Morocco, Portugal, PNG, the list goes on. It is quite a unique forum, it really is. It's organised by the Indigenous Carbon Industry Network and we'll be meeting some of their people a little bit later on in the program. But you think of just how big the Savannah burning carbon methodology has become for Northern Australia in the last decade or so. This has become a key part of what a lot of Indigenous ranger groups do in the North. These days they make fairly decent money, care of the carbon credit units. So what are they doing at the moment? What does the future hold for this industry? We will be finding out today on the Country Hour. On a very wet Country Hour, actually, we're broadcasting from inside the auditorium because outside right now, CDU is getting drenched. The drains are running. The boab trees, which I can see, are getting absolutely drenched. It's a wet day. Good day to be inside. Not a good day for fire, you would think. I've, she's just come out of the auditorium, so I'll put a microphone in her hand. It is Anna Bowstead from the Indigenous Carbon Industry Network. The main uh, conference is still going, so thanks for sneaking out and coming to see the country hour, Anna. Oh, no problem at all, Matt. Thanks for coming along today. Now, tell us, for those who can't be here or couldn't get a ticket because it is sold out, the Savannah Fire Forum, what is it? Well, it's an annual event that we host to bring together anyone with an interest in fire management. Um, there's hundreds of fire managers here today from right across North Australia. Lots of Indigenous rangers and traditional owners who are here talking about the importance of fire to them and uh, and also the, the hard work they're doing on country. We've also got fire ecologists and scientists. Uh, we've had the Met Bureau this morning talking about the weather and uh, also the North Australia Fire Information Service um, talking about how um, what the analysis of the um, satellite imagery is showing about the trends in fire management. Yeah. And this industry, this, this sort of industry we see across the north of ranger groups doing these early season burns and generating carbon credits, how big has it become, Anna? Uh, it's it's uh, really um, grown a lot in the last few years. So our, our industry is now worth about $59 million a year. Um, the price of carbon credits has gone up on the market and the Indigenous carbon credits that are generated through Savannah Fire Management um, they are actually attract a, a premium on the market, so and that's in recognition of all the the benefits that that um, fire management brings. Our co-chair is actually Dini Barbuk is here today as well, and he he was one of the uh, founders of the Savannah Fire Management Method. Wow. Um, from his country in in uh, West Island Land. So, uh, an Australian carbon credit unit. Today's worth roughly $35 a unit. You're saying the work being done by ranger groups attracts a little bit more than that right now? Yes, it, it attracts much more than that in, yeah. uh, in recognition of uh, the, the 
these particular methods, they bring about lots of benefits for country as well as for the climate and for communities. What's your take on the carbon market at the moment, Anna? Uh, it's an well, interesting that's, space. <laughs> that's a very interesting question. I don't think anyone really knows. Mm. Um, uh, there's been a lot of policy changes in the last few months. Um, the uh, ACU review report was handed down um, a couple of months ago and we welcomed the results of that review by Professor Chubb and the panel. Um, that has um, made some um, welcome changes, including now from now on... Um, uh, native title holders consent will be required before a carbon project can be registered uh, which is a great thing because all around the country we're seeing lots of different carbon projects registered before consent was achieved so um, so yeah so we've been advocating for that um, policy change and there's also um, been a number of changes that enable proponent-led method development uh, so that will enable more land managers to be able to develop their own um, carbon methods and bring them up to government rather than them being developed by the government. Uh, you're presenting at this forum uh, and your talks around getting people up to speed with recent changes to carbon market policies. Are there any changes that have you concerned? Uh, yes, there's one change which is the fact that there is, as, as in association with all the policy reform going on through the, the, the Australian government, uh, the method development process is shifting from the clean energy regulator to the department. Um, and we're just concerned that the new Savannah fire management methods, which have been in development for a long time, mm. uh, they were just about to be released after a lot of consultation and a lot of input from uh, scientists and as well as um, carbon farmers and, um, and, and, and Indigenous groups. And uh, now we're concerned that they, the release of those new Savannah fire management methods could be delayed as a result of those government and administrative changes. Mm. Is there much you can do when you're in the Indigenous Carbon Industry Network? Uh, well, all we can do is, is remind the government that these new savannah fire management methods, they're, they're vastly improved. They account for a lot of the um, living biomass. And sitting behind you before was uh, Professor Jeremy Russell-Smith, who has um, been developing that, uh, has been measuring the living biomass through his some he's of been involved since research. almost day one hasn't he <laughs> yes he has um so he's been working closely um with dean yababalk and, and many other um people to develop uh that method and um and then there's there's been uh that will result in in basically um counting for more of the carbon uh and in the landscape which will then um, better account for the carbon benefits of fire management and Anna, I know we're at a fire forum, but are there other methodologies that your network's looking in terms of opportunities for, for ranger groups and Indigenous communities? Yeah, there is um, a great opportunity coming up at the moment, which is looking at the... We're doing some research with um, Nailsma and University of Queensland and uh, Charles Darwin University, um, just looking at the... Um, at how the benefits from removing feral animals, particularly buffalo and pigs, from the coastal floodplain, um, what that looks like, and supporting um, engagement in the development of those methods. Okay. We saw some research just in the month 
from Charles Darwin Uni about removing buffalo. So you're sort of engaging on that space as well. Yes, it's just yeah. the early days of research. Yep, yep. Yes, so um, but we're we're all working together to do um, and uh, partnering together to, to support that research, and it could be a really great thing for you know a lot of uh, land managers who've been um, battling. Um, buffalo and pigs on their country for a long time yeah, and just before i get you to hand the microphone across to dean your bar book are you willing to have a stab on what the carbon price might do throughout this year uh well i think for our market our market is um, quite specialized our members want to um, sell to companies that generally support their values and purpose and uh, so certainly for our market the the price will continue to go up because the demand um, far outstrips the supply um, and also we're in a specialised niche market that's highly valued. Thanks for your time today. Thank and you. And wonderful to see you. Uh, that's Anna Bosted from the Indigenous Carbon Industry Network. Its co-chair is Dean Yabarbuk. Welcome to the Country Hour, Dean. Good to have you uh, back on the program. Look at this event today, mate. 350 people from across Northern Australia, people from around the world. How does that make you feel? So proud, so happy to see new faces uh, and a lot of interest uh, from across the uh, continent, especially around the world in South Africa and many other countries as well. These people who have come from Botswana, Morocco, Portugal, the list goes on. What do you hope they can learn from Indigenous ranger groups when it comes to fire management? Well, I hope they'll learn a lot. As, as it being uh, this forum is taken on now, there's a lot of uh, uh, beautiful uh, uh, speeches and there's a lot of photos uh, being shown showing that what they are, each ranger groups are doing in, in, in their own regions. And hopefully they will take away some important messages to their country and start talking to their own government as well. So this is really, really amazing uh, the way I see it. And, a good gathering together between uh, indigenous people of Australia and indigenous people in, in around the world that they're here today and participating with us. This Savannah burning methodology that's been around for, for quite a few years now, earning carbon credits for those involved, uh, you've been involved with it for so long as well. How have you seen it change over the years, Dean? Look, it is, has changed a lot. And a lot of improvements has happened over the years that we've come, you know, we worked on. Um, for today, you know, a lot of the range, uh, range, community ranger programs uh, in Northern Australia are pretty much happy because they've got people on the landscape, they've got jobs, opportunities, they've got young people coming in. And that's a transition of the young children that are, well, we are proud of that coming in and taking on so it will be their next generation. The young people will be on, on, on you know, doing our work. And how important are carbon credits to the revenue stream of ranger groups? It is very important, uh, the revenue that we receive from our carbon um, uh, uh, programs because it, it creates more jobs. Yep. Uh, uh, it creates uh, sustainable uh, things that you want to buy, things as well, you know, through our ranger program that need and want for our project. So it is, a, it is making a really difference, uh, uh, this carbon um, project area, especially carbon yep. uh, for our you know, returns. There was a ranger group giving a presentation a moment ago, the Thumara Rangers, talking about how they'd done all this work 
spend all this money on the choppers and the manpower, and then one late-season fire came through, and they end up with no credits because of that one fire that burned through so much country. Uh, how often does that happen, and, and how gut-wrenching must that be? Well, that's always we have a problem with the wildfires, you know, uh, well, comes on. Uh, when uh, many, many ranging groups in and Australia do their work, then it comes to where they want to polish it up, but then again, these wildfires occurred. That is really a problem. You know, some, uh, some areas where, you know, you, you almost run down your budget mm. in the first, first, uh, first working period, you know. But when it comes to the uh, late season, uh, late fire and wildfires, you know, a lot of those fundings, it's gone. So, you know, a lot of this uh, carbon money, we need to, you know, put a buffer zone. For those years well, where nature has another yeah, plan for yeah, you. Yeah, yep. yeah. Mm. yeah. So, you know, it has been good and bad in those years. But, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the ranger groups in, in Northern Australia are getting on top of it. Yep. You know, we're starting together, we're learning a lot. Our children are learning a lot as well when they're doing firefighting. So next time, you know, they put aside money, invest money, some, you know, in the bank for the, you know, uh, if the accidents occur, happen, a wildfire, at least I've got to, you know, flight, flight money for chopper. They got, um, um, young people are ready to, you know, jump on and go out doing a work. And this is much better. Yeah, but it's a problem. It's a wildfire is occurring uh, during the e- and during the years. Dean, wonderful to see you. I'm sure you're so proud of what this event has become over the years. And thank you so much for your time on the Country Hour. Thank you. That thank is uh, Dean Yabarbuk from Waterkin Land Management there in sort of Central Arnhem Land, and he's also the co-chair of the Indigenous Carbon Industry Network. If you're tuning in, this is the Country Hour broadcasting from the Savannah Fire Forum, which has been held this week at Charles Darwin University. You'll be hearing from people involved in this event throughout the course of the afternoon. But let's first just have a quick song, and then up next we've got some interesting news that has got the beef industry talking. Right across the territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour broadcasting from the Savannah Fire Forum being held at Charles Darwin University. You can perhaps hear the sound of 350 people exiting the auditorium and heading off for lunch. It is lunchtime at the Fire Forum. We'll be hearing from some ranger groups in just a moment. But first, let's talk beef because the world's largest beef exporting nation is moving quickly today to test a possible case of mad cow disease, also known as BSE. Now, the last case that was found in Brazil was back in 2021, and you might remember that when that happened, it caused the shutdown of meat exports from Brazil to China for three months, and that had ramifications across the world. Simon Quilty from Global Agritrends says Brazil is waiting on official confirmation as to whether this disease has come up again. There was a recent testing of positive for an atypical variety of mad cow disease, other BSC as we know it, that was sent through, and it's on its way to Canada to have it counterproofed to ensure what it is. So. At the moment, yes, there has been a case of mad cow disease, BSE, within Brazil, 
And Warwick, if you recall back to 2021, when this occurred the last time, there was a three-month ban in place, self-imposed between Brazil and China. So I suppose the the wait is on to see if these tests in Canada show up the BSE to be a confirmed case and then this could happen again in terms of closures and so forth? Possibly. At the moment, the health protocol between the two countries, Brazil and China, which was signed back in 2015, it's the obligation of Brazil to report a case to Beijing and then to impose a self-embargo on shipments with the you know immediate suspension of exports. And that embargo is always meant to be temporary until more clarification is got around you know what the situation is, whether it's atyp- atypical or not. So Brazil, largest beef exporter in the world, what potential ramifications does this have for the world market? It's quite significant. If you remember back then when it happened um, in t- 2021, at the time, they were shipping in excess of 100,000 tonnes of beef into that market. Production slowed down dramatically as they looked to divert away. And as you might say, negotiations were between the two governments. Those negotiations were protracted. There's no doubt. And we did see a lot move across into North America at the time, which then led to the triggering of beef quotas in the North American market. So the significance is there, no doubt, and the potential um, impact on global markets, I think, could be quite extensive if it is protracted, if it's short and sharp and it's put and dealt with quickly, then it will be a limited impact, I think, on global markets. And I suppose we're really early days in this and we're still waiting for, for a number of confirmations. So at the moment, it's a watching brief? Yes, it is. I think, you know, it's just a matter of watching. But from an Australian point of view, I guess the two markets that will be impacted potentially is obviously China itself and then within the US as well as product potentially could be rediverted. But I think it also places some interesting dynamics with Korea and Japan because if suddenly China is not receiving meat out of Brazil, we could see a quick response from China for Australian product which in turn could see Japan and Korea step back in looking for Australian product as well. And that's the interesting thing, I suppose, for the Australian farmer to be watching in this space is there has been a warming of China and Australian trade uh, in recent months. We just saw a record month of mutton to China, for example, in January. If China starts looking elsewhere for, for red meat, particularly beef, Australia could be in a good position. Is that fair enough to say? I think that's very fair to say, Warwick. And I guess the 11 meat plants that are waiting on getting their licenses back to China, we believe that's hopefully within days or weeks that that occurs. The timing couldn't be better. So from an Australian point of view, for once, the stars are aligning, Warwick. That is Simon Quilty from Global AgriTrends speaking there to Warwick Long. Up next on the Country Hour, you are going to meet some young Indigenous rangers who have travelled a long way to be at today's Savannah Fire Forum in Darwin. Hello, my name is Salaudi Botongoleoi and I am from Crocodile Island Rangers, one of the women coordinators. And you are listening to the Country Hour.
If you're just tuning in, this is the Country Hour and we're broadcasting from the Savannah Fire Forum which has been held at Charles Darwin University today. It's a forum that's brought in people from all over Australia, from all over the world. And I'm here with Azania, who is one of the rangers working in the northwest of the Kimberley in some really, really remote country. Uh, Azania, first of all, just tell us a story about how you got involved with being a ranger. Well, growing up, I always wanted to go out on country, on my mum's side of country, but I didn't get the chance. So I seen a project was going in our corporation. It was the Rangers, so I said I wanted to join. So I joined, and I was one of the first Dumby Ranger girls when we first started in 2018. So before... 2018, it was just all male rangers in, in your part of the Kimberley? Yep, it was just all male. And in our corporation, as in our ranger group, Dumby Ranger, we only just had male. The women's only started in 2018. Which is wonderful. Tell us about some of the work that, that you and your other female rangers are doing. The work we do in the ranger... Um, we go out, we put out cameras for mammals, for threatened species, and we do f marine work, okay, we pick up rubbish, we do fire, like, you know, we get involved with a lot of things with the boys, we always with the boys working. And just for our audience, we're talking about some very remote country aren't we? You're, you're sort of operating in an area of the Kimberley that is not just remote, but there's so many islands involved as well, yeah? Yeah, it's very remote in our country. We, to get to our country, to our area, we, we can't just jump in a car and drive there. We have to jump in a boat or a plane to, you know, to get there. It's so condensed, you know, and cost-wise, yeah, it's very hard. We're at a fire forum, and as part of your presentation today, you spoke about work that you're starting to do in terms of fire management on some of these remote islands. Can you tell us about that and the benefits that you're seeing? Yes. Well, this year we just started, or last year we just started to burn on most of our, our summer by island. In Dumby country, we own about 600 islands. So the main, we just main aiming all the bigger islands and the ones with cultural sites you know like for us to protect again you know not only mammals our cultural site too we we do fire protection and it's making a difference yeah it's making a difference a lot as the since the ranger project you know and, and through that wonderful work, not only are you protecting country, but are you able to earn carbon credits from that work? Yes, through our fire, we, we earn carbon credits, and that's how we can... Money can go back into our ranger to buy stuff, you know, like to, to get out on country, you know. Help pay for the fuel. Help I reckon fuel, that would be a huge yeah. bill for you guys. Huge bill. Um, also, here is Daphne, who is, uh, is part of the Women's Ranger Group there at Danby. Uh, tell us about how you got involved, Daphne. Um, 
Hello, good afternoon. My name is Stephanie Gilby. Um, I became a ranger to protect my, my area. We grew up from a very strong family. Our, our grandparents didn't have the boys, and, and that's where we come in today. We speak for them. We go to the places that they used to talk about. We protect those areas with everything we can. What do you love about the job? I love that I'm a part of it. My connection to the country is very special. And I don't know how to explain it, but I'm a part of that area. And that area is a part of me. When it comes to fire management, can you explain to our audience what that looks like for you? Like when you're on the ground working with fire, tell us about some of the jobs you have to do. Yeah, um, we have blowers, we have um, whippersnippers, uh, mowers, choppers, um, boats. Yeah, and that's the only way we access our country. It's through boat and chopper. It's very rugged. Uh, sometimes we don't, we don't walk. And what changes have you noticed in the environment now that you're doing this firework? Our country is more being protected now that we are there and working on it since they moved our old people from missions to missions. Um, and our grandparents are buried in another area, which is not their homeland. And it really means a lot to be out on our country. Yeah. And I bet there must be a lot of fun in this job as well. Yeah, definitely. Yes, it's paradise. You can see it from the presentations. Yep. Yeah, a lot of people want to come there. But until then, we'll just keep it like that. <laughs> you both do wonderful work. Thank you so much for your time on the Country Hour. Thank you, Daphne. Thank you. Yeah, big thanks to Daphne Gilby and Azania Malay, who are from the Danby Ranger Group in the remote northwest Kimberley region of WA. Just two of many rangers that have travelled from far and wide to be at the Savannah Fire Forum being held in Darwin this week. Still plenty to come on the Country Hour, including an update on the NAFI website, that all-important website used by Indigenous ranger groups and cattle stations across the north. But now it is news time on the ABC, 1 o'clock. Yo, country. Hello, my name is Otto Campion. Pulmania, they call me from Bushnam. I'm a Arifia swamp ranger. I'm working um, with many countrymen. And you're listening to the Country Hour. You sure are. Matt Brown with you this afternoon, broadcasting from the Savannah Fire Forum being held at Charles Darwin University. This event, this sold-out event, has attracted 350 delegates. There's more than 30 Indigenous language groups represented here today. And people have come from all over the world. Ten nations are here today to learn about all of the great work that our Indigenous rangers do across Northern Australia when it comes to fire management. Now, to tell us a little bit more about that, I'm joined by Sam Johnson, who is from the International Savannah Fire Management Initiative. Tell us about this initiative. What is it? Oh, thanks, Matt. Um, this is uh, an initiative set up to spread the word about what's going on here in Northern Australia. 
with regards to traditional fire management. And the, and the reason it's really important is because uh, the other savannah areas around the world have had exactly the same experience as we've seen here in Northern Australia. That is that with, uh, for thousands of years managed by Indigenous people using fire as a tool, European colonisations interrupted that and now we've reinvigorated it here in Northern Australia. But elsewhere around the world, they, they were in the process of starting to reinvigorate it, but uh, they're, they're following in the footsteps of these, this great work here and learning from it. So, so you've helped to bring delegates from, and I mentioned a few of them earlier, Morocco, Botswana, Timor. You've brought them all here. Uh, what, what do you hope they get out of this event? Well, a, a couple of things. They'll get the energy and the vitality. As you said, 350 rangers from umpteen groups across the country. So, so th this is not well known overseas. And so these people are in charge of the fire departments that they're back in their countries or involved with working with Indigenous people back. And so they're not so aware of what's going on here. And this gives them uh, the opportunity about where they could be in 10 years' time and, uh, or 20 years' time. And so yep. it's a learning experience for them. Do we have any examples around the world of countries earning carbon credits through savannah burning like we see in northern australia no and that's what we're trying to do here and yep. so we uh we do have we have been working in a number of countries where we're very close to selling carbon credits we put in place the mechanisms uh but we haven't actually sold an actual credit yet wow uh, which country do you think is sort of really close to get into that stage so the country where which is most advanced is botswana botswana right yeah. And we've been working there since 2018. We made amazing progress there. We've put in place all of the factors. We've got a buyer who's interested. Right. And the government's behind it, the community's behind it, the science is there. So it's all, and then from there, we can scale up in the other countries even more quickly. So we're very excited. There are the parts of Africa with very similar um, sort of, uh, you know, country as to what we see in the north of Australia, yes? Yeah, for uh, the layperson like myself, it looks identical. I mean, the trees are different, so it's acacias instead of, uh, or miamba woodland instead of eucalypts, but from the air, it looks very similar, and the conditions and the seasons are identical. So, wet season now in Botswana, dry season in June and July. Yep. Unreal. You've, you've, you've just added another dimension to the event. There's, there's that international flavour here. Thank you for telling us about it on the Country Hour. Thank you. And it's a great opportunity which all of Australia should be really proud of because it's world-class leading climate change technology. That is Sam Johnson from the International Savannah Fire Management Initiative here at the Fire Forum being held at Charles Darwin University. We better get ourselves to the Weather Bureau. Billy Lynch is waiting there patiently and Billy, well I can tell you here at CDU it is pouring down rain this afternoon. Yeah, good day Matt. It's a it's a good old wet season day today in Darwin yes. and, and right across the top end. What is the forecast for the next sort of 24, 48 hours when it comes to rainfall? Yeah, look, it's a pretty static weather pattern. So today and tomorrow, we've got this uh, trough near the north coast of the top end, but it's combining with some fairly humid easterly winds, resulting in these scattered showers and thunderstorms. So, um, and they're fairly slow moving as well. So I guess we're kind of expecting sort of widespread 20 to 40 millimetres across the top end, but there's going to be across the north coast, you know, isolated falls to 60 millimetres. 
but it's really the southern top end um, and into the Gregory district where there's the potential for the heavier falls where we're thinking up to 100 millimetres possible in a 24-hour period. So this, you know, includes the Catherine and the Waterhouse, the Daly um, catchments, even parts of the, the Victoria River. So it's very wet out there and we do expect the rivers to respond fairly quickly as, as we're already seeing. OK. And in terms of the monsoon returning, what can you tell us about that, Billy? Yeah, well, it uh, looks like it will make a return from about Thursday. So we can see it quite clearly on the satellite up around Indonesia, um, moving into the northern Arafura Sea at the moment. Um, those monsoonal winds do look like they'll push into the northern parts of the top end from Thursday. So um, monsoon trough developing from there on in, and then it looks like it strengthens a little bit over the weekend as well. So um, that should just give a, the wet season a, an extra kick along. And in terms of Central Australia for the rest of this week, muster report? Not a lot. Um, main thing is still probably the very hot temperatures expected across mainly the, the Lassiter district and southern parts of the Simpson. Um, so temperatures high 30s to low 40s. Today, this afternoon, there is just a slight risk of some uh, lightning southeast of Alice Springs. Not much rain in it, but could be some gusty thunderstorms. That will clear up by tomorrow, and then I guess we're just waiting for this next trough that we'll push into the southwest corner on Friday. We'll bring the chance of some showers and thunderstorms, and then we'll get some a slightly cooler southerly change push in behind it for the weekend. Okay, and are you able to share with us some of the best rainfall totals for the 24-hour period? There's some decent numbers here, Billy. Yeah, most definitely. So overall, there's been sort of 40 to 70 millimetres, um, with the Catherine region being the best. Um, and that includes Nipmuluk Ridge has had 77, Maud Creek 75, uh, Birdie Creek 70, the Catherine Bridge 58, and Tyndall 42. Uh, but top of the list was uh, the West Waterhouse with 91 millimetres. And then if we look at some other regions, um, we saw the Bullo River hit 80 millimetres, Sunshine Bore in the Victoria River catchment 72, Canfield River 63, and then the other one worth a mention is um, Lianya. Uh, it's had 77 and uh, McMinn's Lagoon 50. Wonderful. And it sounds like there's a... There's a bit more to come perhaps later in the week. February ending with a bang, Billy. I like it. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. <laughs> I'll let you be. Thank you for your time on the Country Hour. Thank you. That's Billy Lynch at the Weather Bureau. We are broadcasting today from the Savannah Fire Forum. We've been hearing some lovely stories from Indigenous ranger groups across the north, all the work they do, and how by doing that they also earn valuable carbon credits now, there's a website that allows for all of this to happen, a very important website. Cattle producers use it religiously as well. Up next, we're going to learn more about the NAFI website and how its future is looking. It's 13 past one. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close February 28th. 
proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. It is lunchtime at the Savannah Fire Forum and you are tuned into the Country Hour. I'm here with Rowan Fisher who is from Charles Darwin University and he plays a pivotal role in keeping the NAFI website up and going. So that's the North Australia Fire Information website used by Indigenous Ranger groups. Cattle stations absolutely love it. I'm, I'm willing to say, Rowan, I think they love it even more than the Country Hour, the, the NAFI website. For those not familiar, however, can you remind us, NAFI, what is it, what does it do? Well, thanks, Matt. Yeah, NAFI um, is a web resource, a web tool that provides fire information over 80% of Australia. So we map and monitor fires uh, pretty much every week and we also provide information we call it hotspots on active fires so you can use it uh, as a way of monitoring uh, fires at a landscape level and looking at your risk going forwards but also in proactive uh, fire management so NAFI is now in its uh, 20th year this year is its 20th Happy anniversary 20th birthday absolutely Huge. Um, and when NAFI started, it was really focused on supporting land managers and land management. Um, you find across uh, other jurisdictions in Australia, the focus around fire information is more in that emergency response um, area. But uh, you, yeah, NAFI was the first and really may, remains um, the only resource really focused on supporting good land management with fire. And when it comes to these groups who are using the Savannah burning methodology to earn carbon credits. Can you explain to us how NAFI fits in to that practice? So one thing that's evolved out of NAFI uh, over the last 20 years is a really quite accurate way to measure the amount of fire that's occurring in the landscape. And once we had that, we're also able to use that to determine the amount of greenhouse gases that were being emitted across the highly fire-prone savannah landscapes which then went into a methodology that allowed you to reduce the amount of carbon or greenhouse gases by doing smart burning and by monitoring it using NAFI. And NAFI then also becomes the tool which uh, reports back on the amount of fire that's occurred and when it's occurred. And from that, we can calculate the amount of greenhouse gases that have been produced compared to that to what's happened in the past and then produce a, what we call an abatement number, the amount of reduction in greenhouse gas emissions based on your area burnt, which then provides carbon credits to uh, fire managers across the north. So without NAFI, could these ranger groups calculate and get their carbon credits? It would be very difficult. There is no other um, fire mapping resource which is uh, validated as accurately as what we're doing with NAFI at the moment. And I guess the other thing is uh, those calculations is just one aspect of it. It's the uh, weekly mapping and other tools that NAFI provides that allows for the um, best practice fire management occurs on the ground to get the outcomes that actually provides these carbon credits as well. Importantly, it's the sort of satellite-based uh, digital technology combined with local and Indigenous knowledge coming together on the ground with incredible hard work from the land managers um, to get these outcomes. And how did it make you feel, as someone who's worked so hard on NAFI over the years, how did it make you feel today to hear the WA government get up and say, we use NAFI as a way of identifying hotspots, and then we send out a helicopter to go and try and manage that fire. How did that make you feel? Well, it always makes me feel great to be associated with NAFI. Um, 
WA government, NT government, uh, Queensland government, uh, the, all the, the pastoral land managers and importantly the Indigenous land managers to hear people using the resource in such a practical on-ground way and I think the fact that NAFI has been around for so long, we've had a, a culture of um, good land management, good fire management grow up with NAFI so yeah I'm always very is, proud Is that to be new for a government to really pick it up and use it as a tool for trying to put out a fire? No, not, not particularly because I mean as I said it's been around for so long it's just become part of the culture of land yeah. management so everyone does use it. Uh, there are other resources that people pull in as well but it's always been the mainstay of fire management across the north. Has it got enough funding? Yeah that's always the bugbear isn't it? Um, so uh, currently we're not funded um, after the middle of uh, this year. Um, we're in current talks with uh, the federal government and hoping to get three-year funding, but um, that hasn't been confirmed and decided. So it's always uh, frustrating that uh, this really significant industry, but also the incredible land management story of fire management across the north, um, one of the resources that underpins it, uh, hasn't been a, a priority of the federal government to date. Why? You, you must be so sick of this story. Uh, yeah, I am. The I uncertainty am around NAFI funding. That, that, that's right, yeah. Um, why, I can't exactly tell you, but uh, I think, once again, as, as NAFI focuses on this sort of land management space as opposed to emergency response, um, it just sort of hasn't really hit the priority, and you know, the priority of government has been focusing on those big bushfires in the, the southeast and southwest. Um, so fire management is a critical land management application. It just sort of mm. seems to have missed the... Missed the focus it. Uh, and just finally Rowan, from all of the maps all of the data that you have access to, what would be your take on the work being done by land managers in Northern Australia at the moment when it comes to fire? So a preliminary um, look at what's going on under extremely uh, difficult fire weather conditions due to climate change and some of the heatwave conditions we've, we've been getting through the fire season. What we've actually seen is a massive reduction in the amount of fire across the north. So if we compare fire frequency for the seven years from 2000 to 2006 with uh, fire frequency across the north more recently, we see over 650,000 square kilometres of country with less fire than there used to be. So that's almost three times the size of Victoria with less fire. Now on a global scale, that's a remarkable outcome. Wonderful to see you, Rowan, and thank you so much for your time on the Country Hour. Thanks very much, Rowan. That is uh, Rowan Fisher, who is from Charles Darwin University. Plays a really large role in keeping NAFI up and going, always developing, always making it better. Just needs that long-term funding, eh? Just needs that long-term funding. It is 21 past one on the Country Hour. Let's have a quick little churn, and then we'll catch up with the other co-chair of the Indigenous Carbon Industry Network, Sissy Gorbirch. Pigram Brothers, you are tuned into the Country Hour, broadcasting from the Savannah Fire Forum, and I'm standing here now with the other co-chair of the Indigenous Carbon Industry Network, Sissy Gore-Birch, who lives in Kununurra, and it's still lunchtime here at the Fire Forum, but to be here, Sissy, and see 350 people from across the north and around the world, how does that make you feel? Um... I think it's a very special moment because, you know, looking at 350 people from all around Australia, looking at our 30 delegates, you know, our member group, 
and looking at our international representatives is really awesome to see and also looking at the younger generation who's here with us today so looking at the spectrum of the audience on who's here it's pretty amazing and you know it makes us feel good and you know looking forward to you know what comes out of this because it's a growing industry and there's going to be more and more people interested in this space so it can only grow from here. We met two wonderful young rangers earlier on in the program who, who hail from that remote northwest Kimberley country. And one of the themes that I've picked up on today is the amount of women ranger groups that are starting up in northern Australia, more women getting involved. Uh, how does that make you feel? I mean, I think it's a wonderful thing because I just remember starting in my position as an Indigenous Protected Areas Manager up on Ballangara at that time and there wasn't a lot of women in the space and uh, when the Green Army funding sort of um, finished we ended up getting WWF to fund I think a lot of the women ranger positions right across northern Australia and I think you know from that moment that movement of women have come through over the years and just being in the space in the last 10 years of just seeing the women grow and looking at you know some of the presentations today on just how confident the women are in this space and actually leading in some aspects but you know I think it's really important that you know our women continue to grow and support but also continue to work in collaboration with others across northern Australia and learn from each other but it's just I, I just feel so happy because I just see you know sitting back and being in this industry for so long and now seeing young women and women step up you know to those positions in that leadership role you know, it's pretty special, so, you know, it's just amazing. In your presentation today, you said that this is a space for our people to shine. Mm. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, so, I mean, like, it was more around, yes, we have native title, we have exclusive possession land, we have an opportunity to sit at the table and actually make decisions and plan what we want done on our country, who are the partnerships we want to partner with, and strategically think how do we actually align this to our values and looking at those aligned partnerships right through, but also looking at how do we actually make a difference in utilising this space in a, from a cultural perspective, but also from a Western perspective. So looking at utilising the systems in place on what, what is on offer around the clean energy space, looking at the carbon industry, looking at the opportunities through that. And, you know, we, as you look around, you know, we've got so many delegates from all around Australia, but also internationally. But it just goes to show that, you know, in this space of Savannah, um, fire burning, you know, we have so many Indigenous people really understand what they're talking about. They're on country, they understand country, and they know what's best for country. So this is what, when I talk about shine, it's about being who you are connected to this country as First Nations people taking the lead on this and letting the whole world know you know what we're doing and that's what we're doing and just quickly I know the territory's environment minister is here tomorrow but if you had the ear of all politicians what would you want them to know about this industry I think the important thing is around how unique this industry is and this program for First Nations people of this country to really think about and understand the policies and the legislations that they're thinking around, you know, especially around the nature-based stuff, looking at the different methodologies that are coming through, the legislation around prior and informed consent, you know, the importance of acknowledging First Nations people of this country, looking at the benefits of First Nations people and actually putting funds and um, the, making the effort to really work with our people to 
achieve not only what we're wanting to achieve locally, but what we're achieving, you know, on an international basis on addressing emissions, you know, and addressing the climate, the current climate change movement. Sissy Gorbert, thanks for your time on the country. Uh, all the best for the rest of the conference. Thank you. Uh, she is the co-chair of the Indigenous Carbon Industry Network. It is time now on the country hour to head to the sale yards. With all the latest prices from Roma this afternoon, here is Trevor Hess. Cattle numbers at the Roma store sale reduced by 1,088 head to 6,014. Most were drawn from the usual supply areas plus 440 head from New South Wales. Lightweight yearling steers under 200 kilos made to 632 to average 589. Yearling steers 200 to 280 kilos returning to the paddock made to 600 with a good sample averaging 494. Yearling steers under 330 kilos made to 528 to average 465 and yearling steers under 400 kilos to restockers made to 480 with a large number at 422. The feeder lines made to 428 to average 406. Heavyweight yearling steers to feed made to an isolated 422 to average 300 and 63. Heavy grown steers and bullocks made to a top of 344, most from 326 to 333. Lightweight bulls to restockers made to 420. This has been Trevor Hess from MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you for that, Trevor. And that wraps our broadcast today from the Savannah Fire Forum. If you've missed any of today's coverage, you'll be able to catch it via our podcast. Keep it rural. 